0: We all kind of know on some level that whether or not transit is functioning is a pretty good indication of whether or not a city is healthy. Transportation is one of the first things people talk about when they think about a place. From the absolute transit hell of Los Angeles, famously congested, polluted and intractable, to something like New York or London or Tokyo and the world of the subway. But if you happen to notice, we really haven't built any new subway lines in, I don't know, decades. The Second Avenue subway line in New York City has been in construction since the 1970s. Is this what we've become? From unrelenting traffic congestion to an apparent inability to construct ambitious new infrastructure projects. Something, you know, particularly in America, and even more specifically in New York City and the state of California, has gone very wrong.
1: Hi, I'm Robert Poole. I'm the Director of Transportation Policy at Reason Foundation. I have been doing transportation policy research for over 30 years. Bob Poole
0: is literally the inventor of the express toll lane. He's a transportation guy through and through with decades of experience and research. At the top of the season, we looked at self-driving cars. But once we do get that incredible technological achievement online, it still has to operate on top of our current infrastructure. And that means we're going to be dealing with just a total mess. Bob and I talked about reducing congestion. We talked about the class-based pushback against variable pricing, the rail systems in our cities, the unions, a comparison to transit abroad, tunnel boring machines and why they don't seem to work in our cities, or rather why we won't let them, and the actual policy that our politicians craft and pass that seems to be crippling us. From Founders Fund, I'm Mike Solana, and this is Anatomy of Next. We all have this idea of what the kind of perfect city with sort of perfectly functioning transportation looks like. It's like this sort of Walt Disney World, but in real life. There are monorails and buses, and there are no cars, and it's super clean. The reality is, and it's crazy because it seems like the people who care most about this particular vision, this vision of like a carless city, this vision of like a perfect public transportation, They all live in these giant cities in America, and these are the places that have, it seems just like these intractable problems actually building this stuff. Um, Exactly, yes. So what do you, I mean, is that, first of all, I guess my first question is just, am I characterizing this correctly? I mean, is this a problem? How would you characterize the state of transportation in, say, California, San Francisco today?
1: Right, well I think it's, it's pretty dismal. The freeways are, are still a very much a real fact of life uh, with the, the large majority of people using them as their basic means of getting around the whole metro area, LA, San Francisco, basically every large urban area. And we have this chronic problem of congestion on the freeways. We know how to solve it, uh, the variable pricing. We have proved it with express toll lanes, which, by the way I invented back in 1988, but we have not the political will to really use pricing aggressively to manage traffic flow and, and make the system work the way it could work and should work. So that's one problem. But yes. I think also that the vision of the sort of business vision of cities with no cars is not realistic, very unlikely to happen. The future is not going to be uh, exactly like the present for sure. Autonomous vehicles, I think, are going to change things. We all know they will. It's not clear how soon and in exactly which ways, and there are very conflicting visions of this. If you make personal mobility in a vehicle cheaper and faster and better, you're likely to get more of it. So the people who have a vision of essentially carless cities say, well, okay, everybody has to somehow be persuaded or forced to ride only in shared vehicles with strangers, and I think that's a tall order in what amounts to still a mostly free society where people are allowed to make choices.
0: Yep. I was talking to someone over lunch today about the carless city and I was saying, you know, listen, I take the bus and the subway to work depending on where I'm going. Either if I'm working downtown, right. I take the, I take the, we have a train, an underground train in San Francisco. If I'm going just to the office, it's, I take the bus and this train is so congested at rush hour you cannot get on it. We're talking like six, seven rows I'm of people about deep. This is not even BART. So this is the other no. problem in San Francisco is we have like 17 different types right, of bus and right. train and they're not even, it's like, they're, it's like spaghetti. So this is uh, just Muni and it's, Muni, the local, okay. yeah, it's the local train system. And it's like seven, we're talking like six, seven rows of people deep. They're sending a train every five, six, sometimes if it's the end train, which is what I need, it's like every 10 minutes and so he's telling me that he thinks cars should just be banned, and I'm like, uh, "You can't <laughs> do that in a city that doesn't have transportation no. that is reliable." And he's like, "Well, everyone should just be forced to ride bikes, forced, yeah. <laughs> forced." And I was like, well, um, listen, "I don't. That's listen, not. I don't live in like a, a country that where you can be forced to ride a bike."
1: Right. Right. Just, you don't live in Singapore to use the best case example, and certainly you don't live in Beijing. But no, I mean, I think there's a field called. The economics of urban agglomeration why do we have large metro areas we have large metro areas because they create wealth and they create wealth by having lots of positive sum transactions be possible way more than in a small place okay so this works from the standpoint employers have access to a huge number of people so they can get the best people the highest productivity people for job openings likewise individuals in living in a large metro area have access to a huge array of possible jobs so they can get a match more likely than they can in a smaller place, certainly in a small town, to have you know the best job that's the match for their skills. That's how you get a high productivity economy. The problem with the idea of everybody walking or biking is that you don't have those possibilities. You're down, you've shrunk into a very small, you're practically living in almost a small town. Mm-hmm. And this is Something planners have been pushing, uh, an idea called jobs-housing balance with the idea that if people live close to jobs, then they they won't have to drive, they won't have to cause environmental problems and blah, blah, blah. But that's a recipe for a low-productivity economy. This is not
0: something that people really talk about. And it reminds me of this idea of you know people want to be producing less energy, or we want you know Americans right. to, to be using less energy. It's like no, we want a high energy society. We want to be doing lots more, but with less. It feels sort of linked to me. It's
1: like a different kind. I think of world. I think it, it is linked. It's it's an aspect of the same thing. I mean, we have to be very careful in choosing goals to think about what what are the side effects, what are the unanticipated consequences. If you try to just minimize energy use, energy is not the problem. It's it's side effects of energy. We have to have more efficient energy use. We have to have cleaner energy. But low energy is going to be a disaster for a productive economy.
0: Right. I want to get into why it's so hard. It seems like it's so hard for us to build effective public transportation in this day and age. But before we do, you talked a little bit about the problem with our freeways. And that was interesting. It's a problem I've never heard about before. You you mentioned, was it variable pricing? Can you explain?
1: Variable pricing. Well, I, I moved to Los Angeles from Santa Barbara going from a small, beautiful place where I could bike to work or, you know, five-minute drive to congestion hell in Los Angeles in 1986. And I had to confront the freeway every day, driving to and from Reason Foundation. I thought, why isn't anybody doing anything about this? (laughs) And so I started reading about I discovered that people, economists, including one who won a Nobel Prize, William Vickery, had been researching the idea of road pricing for decades but it had never other than singapore where it had been imposed by an authoritarian government nobody had ever really implemented it and i started researching this and thinking well if we could somehow do this on the la freeways it would really it would, it would fix the problem of congestion people would have an incentive to drive at off hours or to, or to carpool or to take transit i, can,
0: I just want to make things. sure i understand what it is so we're talking about basically charging people more to drive at different times of the day. Exactly. How would you actually implement that? Would it be like a kind of motion tracker or something? I mean, what
1: what would it be? Oh, well, I don't know if you've, in California, there's, for toll roads, there's now, people don't hardly ever pay cash anymore. They use a little transponder on the windshield Mm -hmm. that is read electronically as you pass a toll collection point, and you have an account that is debited each time for the amount of the toll. And that, when that was invented back in 87, I learned about it. And a company called Amtech was developing this and starting to sell it to toll roads to enable people to drive through the toll lane at five miles per hour instead of having to stop and throw coins in the back. So I went to Dallas where they were implementing it and spent a whole day with them. And when we got like, all finished with the demo and showed me all this sort of stuff, I said, well, have you tested this at 75 miles an hour? <laughs> Does it read And they said, "Oh yeah, it works at any speed that we've we've tested at." And I, the light bulb went off in my head and said, "That's how we can do this variable pricing on freeways." But of course, I also, being a realist politically, I thought, "Well, you're never going to sell that to all of a sudden charge everybody to use the freeways that they expect to be free." So my idea was, we uh, add new express lanes to the freeway, so you give people a choice they can sit in the regular congestion and and you know have an hour long commute or they can pay the variable toll in the express lane and have a 20 minute commute and my guess was that a lot of people would choose that at least maybe not every day but for trips where it was really important to get there on time i wrote a paper suggesting this and suggested that it could be privately financed based on the toll revenue And it got to the attention of the California governor's office and Caltrans, the state transportation agency. They brought me in to help them put together a little workshop with private companies and said, yeah, well, if there were a law that allowed us to do this, some of us might be interested in doing it. They got legislation passed in 1989. And the first project that was financed and built was in Orange County on the SR-91 freeway. Called the 91 express Lane, and it was the world's first express toll lane using transponders to do the charging and variable pricing that change every hour of the day based on recorded traffic flow and it really worked well and uh, it demonstrate proved the idea was workable fast forward now it's taken a hard struggle to get the idea to be widely known and accepted but there are now around the country 42 express toll lane projects in operation using that basic system with the transponder on the windshield, prepaid accounts, and variable pricing. The variable pricing now is, in most systems, changes as often as every three or four minutes based on the measured traffic flow to try to make sure that the lanes don't get overloaded and they can be driving at 45 or 50 miles an hour when the other lanes are in stop and go.
0: That's really interesting. I don't think I've ever seen one of these. I I see, in California, I see carpool lanes everywhere. I've never seen this.
1: Well, in the San Francisco, you know, there's several in the San Francisco Bay Area, uh, across the Bay on 580, and I think on 680, and down in Silicon Valley on State Highway 237, there's a short one. And the plans in Santa Clara County are, there's about five more that are underway. They're also planned for 101 on the peninsula. So they're coming. There's a whole plan. The San Francisco, uh, the Metropolitan Transportation Commission has a master plan for express toll lanes to be added to most of the freeways in the in the Bay Area, mostly converting the carpool lanes to express toll lanes.
0: So this sounds like a great, I mean, the whole thing sounds like a great idea. It sounds like this would solve a lot of the congestion that we're looking at, but it reminds me a lot of, well, two things. One, you have the pricing that changes on Uber and Lyft determined by, you know, what time of day, how crowded, things like this. It also reminds me a bit of the Hyperloops that Elon Musk has sort of popularized recently. And what I'm thinking about in both contexts is the pushback that has been extreme from really the I would say the kind of political left and it tends no. to be this argument about well, it's just not fair. It's not fair to charge people more and let them do this. Even if it kind of makes everything better, it's still just not morally okay.
1: I mean, how do
0: you- That concern
1: comes up. There's even a name for it with regard to the express lanes. It's called Lexus lanes. (laughs) The opponents (laughs) always call them Lexus lanes. It it turns out though, Michael, that what we find when we, the state DOTs that have implemented these in Florida and Virginia and Texas and Colorado and, and a few places, California, when they actually measure what kind of vehicles are in those lanes during the rush hour times, it's the same distribution of toyotas and and Nissans and so forth that you find in the regular lanes. And the reason why this why they're not just full of Lexuses and Teslas is because most people, about ninety percent of the people, use them maybe one or two times a week for particular trips like going to the airport or to an important business meeting or if they they have to pick up kids from daycare or they pay big late fees they use them then but they don't use them every day right. there's 10 percent of the people that can afford to use them every day and do be just because they can they'd rather not be in congestion all that time but they're not really lexus lanes they're really everybody lanes so uh, that are a relief valve for. Uh, and buses go free in them so this has dramatically increased the patronage of express buses where those express buses can use uncongested express lanes. Yeah, it turns out
0: people of all income level can make choices for themselves that that
1: work for them. Um, What a revelation, but it's true,
0: and they do. So let's get into, so that's that's the highway system, but I mean, really what I want to talk about is the city. The highways sort of lead to the city, and the city is the thing that, I mean, that's the, the kind of big, lush visual image of where transportation's kind of broken down right now. So- sitting down at lunch today, we're talking about just this. It's the subway. It's the it's the bus in, in, in San Francisco. It's the idea that this, I mean, really San Francisco is just, it is unlivable in so many different dimensions. And I think that the transportation is another, and this is one that that actually not everybody in the city has a lot of exposure to because people increasingly are using Lyft and Uber. And how can you blame them? They're just like, well, I'm going to spend tons of money and just to avoid all of this and, and get where I need to get. But I am very stubbornly still using public transportation so I'm sort of looking around and I'm sort of just
1: submerged in the problem every day. And it's like, this stuff well, what, just doesn't work. One of the problem is that the transits, the rail transit systems that we've built in this country in the last 40, 50 years have been built mostly with federal grants. So that with the capital costs, which are very large, were funded primarily by somebody else. And those systems are not really run like businesses. Uh, obviously, you can't support the costs of them out of the fare box. But they're still not run like businesses in the sense that they don't use a business like they don't use accrual accounting so they never budgeted for replacement like bart for example it's beautiful system when it when it opened but it's obsolete technically they should be able to run twice as many trains but the signaling system doesn't permit that but they never budgeted for capital renewal of the system and so uh, you know all the money has been spent on operations and maintenance and when it eventually wears out as it's doing very, very difficult to figure out how to pay for replacing it. It's true of the Washington Metro. It's true of all the rail systems basically that, that have been built in the last 40 years or so since the federal government got into it. Instead of each metro area butting the bullet and saying, all right, this is our system. Uh, we need to pay for it ourselves because it's it's going to benefit us and run it as bus- in as business-like a manner as possible using accrual accounting, Properly uh, amortizing capital costs, and also, frankly, getting tough with the unions to make this more of an ordinary business and not, not have the system run more for the benefit of the employees than for the benefit of, of the riders who depend on it.
0: Right. So I want to get into actually, I do want to get into the the union question. But before we do that, you just we were talking about local transit, and specifically, we we're talking about how Bart is out of date breaking down and just kind of not, not as, not as good as it once was. And that got me to thinking how, I mean, yeah, that's, I feel that not even, it's like BART, Muni, Caltrain, all of it is like kind of crappy and people don't want to take it. And so increasingly they're not, they're taking cars that's causing lots of congestion, but also like separately from just not being pleasant, what it's doing is it's kind of, it's taking public transit off of the mind. So people aren't even thinking about it. So it's, it's kind of hard to get people even excited about something like, hey, let's fix the train or
1: angry. Right, right. No, I, it, I think that's, a, be- that's a real dilemma. And it's likely to get worse in coming years. Vehicle autonomy is going to make it. The Transit systems now, to the extent that they're talking about autonomous vehicles at all, they say, all right, well, this solves the first mile, last mile problem. How you get from your house to the transit station, and then how you get from the transit station on the other end to where your actually where your destination actually is. But once it becomes affordable to have, a, you know, once you have an Uber that doesn't have a driver, and you know the cost to use it there comes down. How many people are going to want to ride with strangers and have to delay their door to door trip by picking up and dropping off other people? The most likely thing is that they're not going to use it just to get to the transit. They're going to use it door to door. And yes, you're right. I mean, in a way, that's going to make things worse. And that, to me, the answer to that is going to have to be congestion pricing, not only of the freeways, but of the streets.
0: So we have the problem of people not using local transit. We have the problem of the transit not being run like a business. We have the congestion problem. But what I would love to talk about is why can't we build anything right now? San Francisco, I mean, I think we've been working on this Chinatown line for decades certainly in New York City you have the 2nd Avenue subway right. line which right. has been you know people working on that for for decades and and let's maybe just i know the focus of the season really I'm trying to look at San Francisco but New York I mean this the 2nd Avenue subway line is really crazy and I think it's a problem that we share but it's maybe a little more kind of a better example and certainly
1: there's it's even more in new york it's not only really the second avenue subway it's it's the uh, the access of the long island railroad into grand central and penn station so can you uh, that's equally drastically over budget and costing three or four times as much as a comparable line in other major cities around the world. Can you just
0: do me a favor and characterize, just for people who don't know anything about it, can you explain what's going on in New York on the Second Avenue subway line? The
1: problem is, first of all, that there's not one organization that is building and responsible for the Second Avenue subway. There's a dozen organizations and they all have to somehow coordinate and the decision-making process about anything takes forever because everybody, all kinds of people can say no, and you need them to all say yes in a coordinated way. So that's one problem. Another is the uh, construction trades unions have just a lock on things. New York Times has done a great series of articles looking at comparable subway projects in in European cities, uh, London, Paris, and also in Japan and other places, and tunnel boring machines are this wonderful invention that is being used all over the world to to bore tunnels underneath cities and the staffing of a tunnel boring machine the new york times found in new york city was four or five times as many people as a a tunnel boring machine in paris now that's absolutely and it's entirely due to to union work grown up over over decades and nobody's willing to take that on in new york city that's just the status quo that's always been there, and so it costs five times as much. And the cumbersome organizational mess of so many people who have to make, uh, be involved in decisions means that it takes forever as well. And so that project, the cost was so high that they stopped it and started it a number of times over the last several decades, and it's finally finally built, uh, you know, a couple of miles. And it's supposed to go, uh, you know, there's another two or three phases. It's supposed to go, you know, a dozen or 15 more miles. And no one knows exactly when that will happen or how they're going to pay for it.
0: How long have they been working on it
1: now? The current uh, project, I think, has been going on for a decade and a half, something like that. But that's after a hiatus of of several decades uh, uh, where some tunneling had been done. I think the early tunneling was done before the tunnel boring machine came into common use.
0: Wow. Let's dig more into the unions. So you kind of just started talking about that in the context of the boring machines, which for whatever reason, our unions are demanding take five times the staffing that you see in Europe or Japan. What are the other dynamics happening there?
1: Well, I'm not sure. I mean, I have not studied this in detail. I've mostly relied on on a couple of, of articles from the Manhattan Institute, which is based in New York and the New York Times series. New York Magazine just had one a couple of weeks ago that was devastating as well. It's an object lesson on the absolute worst way of of putting obstacles in the way of building things. Now, In general, in California, California has a reputation as being a place where it's very hard to build anything in terms of, of like civic construction, public works. The Oakland Bay Bridge, San Francisco, Oakland Bay Bridge, when the eastern part had to be torn down and had to be rebuilt because of the earthquake damage about 20 some years ago. That project ended up costing five or six times as much as the original cost estimates because in California, you have the California Environmental Equality Act, CEQA, that over time has made it possible for all kinds of different groups to litigate, to try to stop any project that they don't like, whether it's for good reasons or bad. You also have, have Caltrans Engineers Union. Caltrans is the state transportation agency As far as I know, it's the only state DOT whose entire engineering workforce is unionized. And that union workforce has resisted all of the innovations in construction and contracting techniques that have been widely adopted in most other states, not New York, but most other states. (laughs) Um, There's a technique called design build that streamlines the process. Instead of having a separate design phase and then a separate construction phase, you have one contractor that. Does both, so it's designed to be constructible and you don't have massive amounts of change orders once you take the plan and actually give it to a contractor and finds it's not really buildable. But the engineers union has design build technique that's used all over the country is not legal in California for transportation projects, at least any that have Caltrans state DOT involvement in it and taxpayers' money. So that's another example. California just, I mean, I was amazed. I lived in California for something like 30 years and, and did a lot of work on transportation, got to know people at Caltrans and saw how they worked. When I moved to Florida in 2003, I started advising the Florida DOT. I also got contracts to advise the Texas DOT and several other states. And I was just amazed at how relatively easy it is to build things in places states like Florida and Texas would be unthinkable in California. All these new procurement techniques are used in these states and in indiana and in colorado california is really missing out on being able to build things that are that are greatly needed in both transit and highways i mean you have highways uh, that you know bridges wear out there's need for for a lot more investment in transportation in california but if you have systems in place that make it very costly the same money goes half as far as it would go or a third as far as it would go in Texas or Florida or Colorado or Indiana or Virginia, for that matter. Places that are actually building things and including the express toll lanes, replacing obsolete bridges with modern bridges and having them cost a billion dollars instead of four billion or five billion. This is a low productivity economy when it comes to public works infrastructure in California. You mentioned a handful,
0: really, of the different kinds of groups that really try to prevent productivity
1: growth. Right, right. Um, I mean, it's, it's some of, sometimes it's environmental groups, sometimes it's what are called NIMBYs, not in my backyard, mm-hmm. people who just, they think that because their life will be somewhat affected if there's, there's more noise from traffic, but their disbenefit should outweigh massive benefits to hundreds of thousands of people. I mean, there has to be you know, it has to be decision-making process that makes those trade-offs and tries to make it in a way that is good for the overall society. And I think California in particular has evolved ways of dealing with these things that just give way, far too much weight to those kinds of objections. There was a new toll road built in San Diego that started out from the same legislation that I talked about that passed in 1989 that allowed private sector investment that project in San Diego, was, it was in the long range transportation plan. It was designed to get people from near the Mexican border to the middle of San Diego County, it was an area where that was rapidly suburbanizing and didn't have any, it had no freeways, no limited access roads. That was litigated by NIMBYs and environmental groups for 10 full years before they could finally get to a decision that, to go ahead and, and do the project. And unfortunately for the project, because it was a toll road, it depended very much for its viability on on people deciding to use it, deciding it was worth paying tolls. When it finally opened, it was just before the housing market collapse and the financial markets collapse, in 2008. And the road went bankrupt (laughs) because traffic collapsed. If it had started seven or eight years earlier, it would have had a, a steady clientele. It would have been in good financial shape and probably would have survived that huge financial markets uh, downturn that uh, put people out of work and reduced traffic.
0: Two sort of last questions. First is just kind of maybe a little bit weird. This is sort of slightly off topic. It's a little more abstract. But aren't all of these, there, there really are just all of these different entities, so many in California and in New York, where it seems like people just they don't want anything to be happening. They don't. It's like they don't want- That's right.
1: To be, they like the status quo the this, way it is, I mean, despite all of
0: its problems. Philosophically, what is this? Because it seems like we should all be on the same page. It seems like we should just all, I mean, there are lots of people in California, we should just want to build more buildings. We should want it to be better designs, the sort of latest technology. We want transportation to be working. And that's the assumption that I keep coming at. And so then we have these really nice, rational discussions with people who are like, oh, if you want to Fixed transportation, here's how you would do it. But it, it actually doesn't seem like everybody's on the same page here. What is that? What is the thing that causes people to not want to make our
1: cities better? I don't really understand that because it exists in a very much smaller and less intense form in in, in some of the states that I that I've talked about, like you know, Texas and Florida and Virginia and so forth, but in nowhere near the extreme form that you find it in, in Metro New York and and in most of Cal- particularly coastal California and where which is where the main metro areas are it's a huge problem and it's grown up over time I mean California in the 50s and 60s when the freeways were being built now admittedly with some destructions of some neighborhoods and things like that that led to a freeway revolt which was understandable but the general mentality then was California's growing we need to have the infrastructure Pat Brown as governor not very well remembered. And I wasn't in California when he was governor, but he built the aqueducts. He built the University of California system with with campuses spread around the state and basically built the freeways and the interstate highways. And California has lived off the legacy of those investments for decades and decades without renewing them, without continuing to add to them as the population doubled and tripled and quadrupled. And it's a very, very sad state that, this, that California has come to because of that. And I have not seen it that intensely, that nimbyism, that don't build things, just make do with what we have. I haven't seen it to that extreme extent in most of the other states that I've had experience with. And it's very tragic. People back during, sure. I think, the
0: 1989 part of the freeway that used to run through San Francisco collapsed. Um, oh, right. And the government obviously was like, "All right, time to rebuild it after the earthquake." And there were all of these massive protests, and so we never built, the, we never rebuilt the freeway. So we have just traffic now flooding the side streets on its way between down south Daly City, between that and the Golden Gate Bridge, which is obviously like a major, it's a major amount of traffic. And people today they celebrate that; they say that was this I massive know, victory, know. and it, it is I, crazy I, I to suppose- me.
1: About 15 years ago, I proposed that now that we had tunnel boring machines and they were being starting to be used in Europe and in China, that the missing link on Highway 101 that cuts through the city as surface streets ought to be connected as a deep bore tunnel under the city. Yes. And then the through traffic would uh, would have a way to get through without getting onto the streets and congesting the streets. People who needed to get out of the city would have maybe one or two entrances and exits where they could get into the tunnel and get to Marin County or head south out of the city. But that idea never it never caught hold at all. City and county of San Francisco has a, a Department of Transportation, and they actually did look at it. I had some contact with them when I first – I had the article. It was a published Reason Foundation paper, uh, and it was published in a journal as well. They actually did look at it at, at some point. There may have some old records there from probably – thought nineteen ninety or ninety-one, that would be the starting point. It would have to get into a transportation plan. And I would not give high hope hold out high hopes for that, but I think it still would make a great deal of sense.
0: You are now we're dissolving the board of supervisors in San Francisco completely. They're gone. You are being appointed mayor. You have been empowered for let's say just emergency six months. You can build whatever you want to build. How do you make the city better? How do you make it so it's, it's just like the transportation is working? What does that look like?
1: What do you have to do to get there? Well, we'd, we'd have to come up with a big funding source to rebuild, modernize BART, probably and Muni. You'd have to put congestion pricing on the streets of the city, which would be part of a funding source. Uh, probably need a bigger bigger transportation sales tax. You definitely would want to have the parts of the of the region-wide express toll lanes network that are on freeways in san francisco city and county would need to be expedited so that you don't have missing links there and definitely build the tunnel connecting 101 so it's not 101 on surface streets clogging the city and think hard though about the future once autonomous vehicles comes How are we going to really handle the advantage to people to not use the conventional transit? And how are we going to cope with it? I think pricing is going to have to be the answer to that, to moderate the use of vehicles on the streets. And that would motivate people to use shared autonomous buses, autonomous vans, things like that, so that the streets don't get completely overloaded into gridlock.
0: You are listening to Anatomy of Next.